This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hey, Katie. David, you got to talk to the director of truly one of my favorite movies of the year and one of my best festival movie-going experiences at TIFF. Uh, You talked to Alexander Payne about The Holdovers, and I'm very jealous, even though I think that um, he is the kind of director who is not going to let you off easy in a conversation where you're telling him (laughs) what you think of his work, uh, which makes me very excited to hear this conversation. I'm excited for people to hear it. Uh, Our producer just described the interview as feisty. I think that's a very good word for it. Um... (laughs) I don't consider myself a feisty person, Katie. I don't know how you view me, but... um, (laughs) That's not the vibe I get, no. (laughs) But all in in good spirits, and I think in a mutual respect for his work, and especially this movie. You know, he's somebody who I gathered pays a lot of attention to the things people say about his movies, the ways in which they respond to them, and he has a lot of curiosity about why they have the reactions they do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's coming off of Downsizing, which I think was probably his least regarded movie he's made since Election, maybe, you know, so he doesn't make films that often. And usually when they come out, they get like a ton of praise along the lines of what The Holdovers is getting. So I'm imagining for him, it's a little bit of whiplash. Like, wait, you didn't like me anymore. Now you like me again. What's what's going on? Yeah, we we talk about Downsizing a little bit, and he's he's pretty frank about the way that the film was received and, you know, some disappointment he felt. He also had some, you know, criticisms for himself on maybe how that could have gone a little bit differently, either in the marketing or the actual structure of the movie. Um, in the case of The Holdovers, you know, I opened this interview by asking him about a pretty common reaction to the movie, which is that a lot of people have found it cozy and maybe relatively feel good for his work. And and he wanted to interrogate that. And so we go back and forth a little bit on that. And as someone who grew up on Alexander Payne movies, he's one of my favorite directors. It was uh, terrifying and thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do want to emphasize how much I love The Holdovers. And like whether or not you want to call it cozy, it has this 
chilliness and warmth to it, an interesting mm-hmm. combination. It's a, it's a script that he didn't write. It's written by David Hemmingson, who um, Rebecca has interviewed. It's his first feature film, um, really based closely in his own, own experiences. And so much of the way it depicts this world comes from a place of affection, even if there's a lot of darkness within there. I think that's a huge part of the power of the movie and something that Alexander Payne does really, really well in his films. Yeah, I think that's especially true of the relationships at the center of this movie. Uh, it follows a teacher who is not well-liked at this boarding school, uh, played by Paul Giamatti. Uh, and he ends up in this sort of Christmas holiday uh, isolation period due to various circumstances with uh, a student, Angus Tully, who's played by a discovering Dominic Sessa, and the cafeteria manager of the school, Mary, played by Divine Joy Randolph. And the relationships are a little rough around the edges. They're not too easy to warm to each other. But I think the strength of this movie is that the relationships are ultimately very hard, very hard one, because you have such a good sense of pacing, such an honest sense of characters trying to figure each other out, that when they really do allow themselves a little bit of grace with each other, it's it's very meaningful. Yeah. Well, I cannot wait to hear how Alexander Payne talked about making that happen and everything else you guys got into. So much intrigue in this one. Uh, Let's hear your conversation with the director of The Holdovers, Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne, uh, thank you so much for being here uh, with, in my opinion, one of the best movies of the year, The Holdovers. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. I I wanted to start with the, the feel of this movie. Everyone I know who's seen it has commented on how light and cozy they felt uh, coming out of the theater. And I'm just wondering what, like, to what extent that was a, a goal of yours with this movie. I got to tell you, I'm a little, I'm always a little surprised to hear this. Oh, it's like a cozy movie or a warm hug or putting on a sweater on a cold day and eating, drinking hot cocoa. And it, Part of that kind of <laughs> nauseates me a little bit. I, I thought I was just making a decent movie about people. Maybe that's what we need, though, right? Well, you're the first person I'm getting to ask, what is it that felt cozy to you or or warm? Like, what what about, was it, is it the texture of the film or the quality of the human relations presented? Or what was it? Yeah, I, I, I think it's the attention to the dynamics between the characters and the belief maybe that there is something that they can bring to each other that is positive and affirming uh, in some way. I I found it partly cozy because I believed in the connection that you develop between those characters. Still cozy. So so, uh, in your question, we could talk about two things. One is this quality Mm -hmm. that it has perhaps of, uh, uh, that we can pierce our natural assumptions about others given new knowledge. Yep. That everybody's got a story. You meet someone, you make certain assumptions fair, fairly or unfairly, usually unfairly. But then the more you get to know the person, the more you see the, you know, the humanity underneath. And then by extension in this film, if there's a feeling that seemingly very disparate people can with time discover some common humanity. So that's a nice thing. I wouldn't necessarily use the word cozy, though. Why, why do you use the word cozy? Well, part of it just has to do with the milieu, the seat, the, you're working in Christmas time. Uh, uh-huh. 
you're in Massachusetts, you're in boarding school. There's, there's a and maybe period and maybe some of the period flavor yeah. contribute to. Yeah, the film feels like a throwback, and I know that's that's quite intentional on your end to some extent. That part I can relate to because when I see some films from the late, I'm sorry, from the early '70s, perhaps because I was a little kid then and watching those movies, and movies were really good then, and uh, put a primary focus on human relationships and how messy uh, mm -hmm. life can be, and. Uh, I certainly can feel a certain coziness when I watch a Bob Rafelson movie or a Hal Ashby movie from that period. So on, on that level, I can understand that. Thanks for letting me explore that with you. Just because I've heard it or read it a yeah. couple of times, and I'm what, not quite sure what to make of it, whether to be complimented or, or insulted by it. Not insulted, but you know what I mean. I, I completely understand. And another way of posing it, perhaps, is my feeling that you know, it's a bit of a cliche right now, but movies like this are not made very much anymore, especially on this scale. Now, what, um, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by movies like this aren't made much anymore? You're you're going you're going for it, Alexander. <laughs> I love it. I I mean something that I know you've talked about: this sort of mid-range adult drama focused on human relationships. Okay, that, all right, very good. Yep. Yeah. And so for me, as someone who loves film, who grew up with movies on movies like that, that my parents showed me, including some of yours, there is something maybe cozy just about being able to go back into a theater and experience a movie like that again that is considered and thoughtful. Okay, so that I can, and David, where did you grow up? I grew up all over, but I was born in Los uh -huh. Angeles. Well, that I can understand that, that we're going to the cinema – the movie theater, and I hope, I mean, we're talking now on Tuesday, October 24th, and the movie opens in theaters this coming Friday. So it's certainly my prayer that people will go to the movie theaters to see it. And mm -hmm. my prayer that people are returning to the cinemas more and more to see movies and not just the big movies, but even the, the smaller, more human movies. And my hat's off to Focus, who's distributing this movie for kind of for making a commitment to theater to to cinemas for a movie like this, at least for the first month or two. I mean, it'll it'll yeah. stay in theaters for a while. They'll start to leech in some VOD and eventually streaming abilities to see it, but they're committed to keeping it in theaters, and I couldn't be happier. Mm -hmm. In terms of the financing, I know you made this movie independently. Focus bought it uh, out of Toronto about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Right. Um, were there challenges just in the fact that it is uh, a less crowded market, let's say, for movies like this than it used to be? No. No, I mean, it, it, by American standards, it wasn't a high budget. So, I mean, in my career has succeeded largely because I've been I've kept my budgets low or been forced to keep my budgets mm -hmm. low at least by, by american standards by european standards they'd be considered high budgets but by u.s standards on the low side uh but i i happy to report that nobody said anything they just the financier guy named bill block just liked the script and believed mm -hmm. in me and liked paul giamatti and he was positively predisposed because he himself had attended a boarding school in New England, Hotchkiss. Hmm. And he related very, sure. very, very personally to it. 
Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash littlegoldmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash littlegoldmen. So uh, I know you've said, and I can see this in your work, that in a way you've been trying to evoke, make, 70s movies uh, for your whole career. And, and and this one, it's obviously made more literal. So what did some of the techniques look like in terms of achieving that feel, that aesthetic, uh, that I think the movie does quite beautifully and subtly? On the technical level, it's easiest point to, 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 easy, to point to the uh, lenses that we used mm-hmm. and the way we lit the sets and then the uh, veneer of a 70s film that we placed on the image after it was made grain and gate weave and softer lines and things that more approximate film stocks from the period mm-hmm. the production design though it's it's as important as the photography is what you are photographing mm-hmm. and i think that the production designer and the costume designer were committed to an aesthetic which was that we were not making a period film per se, where we're just bending over backwards to look how period this is, but rather Mm -hmm. that we were making a contemporary film pretending we're in 1970. Like we're, we're making, we're in 1970 making a low budget film then and Mm -hmm. wanting our sets and costumes to be as banal and found as if we were, were working then. And then to some degree also in the screenplay, just the quality and rhythm of the narrative that it's very much more interested in character, messiness mm-hmm. of character rather than in, you know, a, a driving plot with dictates for page 30, page 60, page 90, that kind of stuff. So it, it all came together, I I hope. Yeah, I think it does. And I, the screenplay part is, is really interesting to me because I would imagine that there were some conversations just about getting to that point with this trio 
where those epiphanies, those moments of connection, those moments of grace feel earned because you want the the harsher stuff to to land and to you know, there's comedy there too to in to inform the direction of those relationships. How did you figure out the balance of of getting there? That's David Hemmingson, the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. I gave him the premise. He came up with the story. Well, he proposed three, four, five different stories. I said, let's let's pursue that one. And uh, then he he's just a very clever writer, and I think adaptable. I think he readily adapted to the type of story the type of stories I like to tell in general, and then mm-hmm. what I was looking for in this one in particular. And uh, I, if I helped him in any way in developing the screenplay, it was anytime something would smack potentially of a contrivance or a deus ex machina or something a little bit too easy, I'd flag it. Mm. I'd say, you know, I, I get why we need this on a screenwriting level, but... Let's see how we can put some narrative astroglide on the edges of it to <laughs> to slide it, in a, slide it into the story a little bit better. You know, there's a part in the movie where a helicopter lands and takes a bunch of the students away. And sure. if, if incorrectly done, that would just be so deus ex machina. So mm-hmm. exactly how do we set it up and what's the exact tenor of it? And, you know, things are always, it's not what you do, it's the way how you do it. We collaborated very well together. Yeah, David, David Hemmingson and I. And uh, this is this had originated with a, a pilot, correct? That he had written. It originated with two things. One was I had had the idea for this film for about the last dozen years. I had seen the same mm-hmm. premise in a French film from 1935, and I thought, well, that's that's a good idea for a movie. But I hadn't done anything with the idea. It was just on my list. And then about five years ago, I got a TV pilot by David Hemmingson set in the world of uh, boarding school. Contemporary story, but it was a really perceptive script written uh, about a boarding school. So I got in touch with him. A little light bulb went off. Hmm. And I got in touch with him and said, I like your script very much. I like the world you suggest. You obviously know it. Would you consider writing a feature script for me? in that same world and with this idea. And he said, yes, thank God. There you go. The Christmas time setting, did you have any touchstones in terms of films or just how you wanted to contribute to that canon, let's say? No. No. Well, I, only, <laughs> only because I never, I still don't, re, I don't, I'm not trying to be disingenuous here. I just don't see it as a Christmas movie. It's a movie. Sure. It's a movie that could take place only at Christmas because of the nature of it. And it's 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 uh, melancholy in that here are these boys who have nowhere to go at a time where you're supposed to be with your family. So, like, automatically there's a melancholy backdrop to it. And then the lovely part is how the three main characters find a way to be together during this during this time where they really should be with family. Uh, yeah. But within all of that, like, it just seems like a Christmas movie formula, but I just didn't see it that way. What it is, like, I'm reading some early reviews, like, oh, people watch this every Christmas. I'm like, really? Great. But I didn't think about that. They they very well might. I, I hope so. Um, I wanted to ask about the chemistry between these three actors. 
mainly because you're working with, I think it's safe to say, a real discovery uh, in Dominic Sessa, an actor you've, you've, of course, worked with before in Paul Giamatti, and an actor who I've loved for a number of years in Divine Joy Randolph. How did you observe the three of them playing off of each other, and how did that inform uh, the movie, the filmmaking at all? Well, I always think that if I'm, I have my own taste, and I always think that if I'm casting these individual actors, they will get along and they will have chemistry on screen. I never do what they call in television chemistry reads, like, oh, let's put these actors together and make sure that they hit it off on screen. I've, I've never done that. However, I did do it a little bit with Paul and Dominic Sessa, this newcomer, mm-hmm. only because Dominic had never been in front of a camera before, not even a short film. Right. And I wanted just to get a sense of his, how he was going to occur with Paul. Paul had already seen his audition tape and was positively predisposed to Dominic. But uh, I wanted, even before I absolutely pulled the trigger on casting Dominic, to kind of get the three of us together, this was via Zoom, to start to like begin that process of, Dominic, we're there. To, we're going to be there to help you. We're going to cast you, and we're going to be there to help you. And Paul, you have a teacher-student relationship on camera. You'll have that to some degree off camera. If you, Paul, can be helping Dominic with some tips and how to relax and how to act for the camera. And of course, I'm there to support you both. And it was in that audition that I really got a great feeling. I remember mm-hmm. sending a text later that said, "Habemos papam. We have our pope." We have Dominic. <laughs> and then uh, Divine mixed in great with the both of them. She's a pro. She didn't have as much scene, as many scenes with Dominic, just the two of them, as Paul had with right. Dominic. But just the three of them worked together very nicely, I think. I hope audience thinks yeah. that too, but I think it just worked out nicely. Yeah, I think so. You've mentioned now a, a few things you've you've picked up on, I suppose, in in the reaction to the movie. Is that something in your career that you have maybe wrestled with, you know, and intent versus execution and things like that? Because I'm I'm just picking up on it. So on the date we're talking, we're on October 24th. I've seen the film at four different festivals. Yep. A couple of private screenings. And so I'm starting to get a a whiff of it, a sense of how it's playing. You know, the Mm -hmm. lands, when the laughs come when it's sad, when it drags, when it picks up, you know, whatever it is. And uh, that it's basically playing well is first and foremost a relief. Yeah. You know, we put so much work into making a film, and so that it basically is playing well is a relief. And then, if you know, a little ego stroke put in there, too. You can't deny that. But more than that, sure. I'm, I'm happy when people say they're, they they were touched by this or that aspect of it, that it made them think about something. And uh, there are some emotional parts and that they appreciate that some of the emotional effects are produced without sentimentality, mm-hmm. which is something I uh, consciously go for. You know, I hate feeling manipulated myself in movies, but you still want to have emotional effects in your movies. And how do you do that? How do you calibrate it? So it's... It's pleasant that some of those things are are working, seem to be working. Mm. Yeah. Do you always slash, uh, how have you found reading reviews of your work over the years? Because it sounds like you've read a few for this movie. 
Yeah, not all by any means, but I, I really appreciate reviews written by thoughtful critics. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not one of those filmmakers who say, well, I never read critics and why would I do that? And they're parasites. I mean, I just think that's such an, an ungenerous and incorrect way to see film criticism. Yeah. It could be that you don't want to read most of it because now every Tom, Dick, and Harry is out there writing something and press, uploading it and pressing send. And what, you know, why would you want to read everything there? But when you've got thoughtful film critics, I mean, I can learn something from a good review. I mean, mm-hmm. by good, I mean well written. It could be positive or negative about the film. But I can learn something about how my film is fitting into f- film culture in general or something where I it, I did a little bit too much or a little bit too little. And then film critics are also fantastic in how they bring lesser known, f- they can champion lesser known films and bring it to a bigger audience yeah. or even champion a big film to a film snob audience and say, oh, you film snobs, you might be avoiding this particular Marvel film or big action film, but actually you should see it because it's a very, very good movie. Mm. That sort of thing. Yeah. So that's very it, true. They, it might be a minority of film critics, but I, I always, I, I do read ones that I care about. I remember years ago on my first feature, Citizen Ruth, I got basically pretty good reviews for a very low budget, small feature that nobody saw. And, uh, you know, David Denby in New York Magazine, I recall, compared it to Preston Sturgis and all this nice, heady stuff. But Joe Morgenstern at the Wall Street Journal didn't like it so much. But I read why. I read his review, and I went, huh, yeah, yeah, I could have thought about that a little bit more. And when I met him, I said, Mr. Morgenstern, I read your negative review of Citizen Ruth, and I just want to say I agree with you (laughs) on some of the things. And we became pretty good you know professional friends after that and it's nice too when filmmakers can be uh friends with film critics but still keep your respective jobs separate like we can be friends and talk about stuff but still when it comes time to reviewing one of my movies i expect you to be and respect you for being completely honest about it as though we weren't friends Mm. i've been lucky enough to have some relationships like that yeah like an ideal dynamic you still want to nerd out with some of them you know, talk sure. about other movies and stuff. I'm curious how you look back on a movie like Downsizing, where the reception was a bit more mixed, and what that experience was like, especially given that you do like to engage on that level. In- engage on what level? The critical level. Oh, yeah. Well, you can't win them all. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the the odd thing about that one is that Jim Taylor had put, and I had put so much time, perhaps too much time into the screenplay. Mm. And part of that was my insistence, also the timing of where we were in culture, mm. that it be a feature film. I think if we had that idea now, it's an idea that would probably be better served by a limited series than by a feature yeah. because it, it's such a big idea and we were trying to cram so many ideas, ideas both to support the larger satirical narrative and the effect, the the effect on the banal lives of the people affected by this large idea, that there was almost like too much going on. You know, twenty pounds of story and eight pounds of sausage casing, and uh, it's 
sometimes tenuous shifts, episodic shifts and shifts in tone would have been more forgiven by different episodes of a limited series. But anyway, it was fun to make. It was a triumph. Even the movie, even though the movie tanked, it was a triumph just to get it made. Yeah. And uh, and then, yeah, I think it smarts a little bit when your movie tanks, but then you just mourn it for a minute and say what you tell yourself after a failure or a success, which is next. Yeah. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Do you worry about the state of theatrical for movies like this? I know you said you're, you know, really excited by and and, and pleased that it is getting a, a strong theatrical release, but it is a very different market even than when Downsizing came out. How do you read it? Well, we'll find out, won't we? We will. It, it, it opens this coming Friday. And, you know, here's what they're doing, though, Focus, they're, is they're doing a good old-fashioned platform release like Grandma used to make. And by platform, mm. we don't mean streamer thing. We no, mean yes. platforming theatrical release where you start it small, hopefully garner some good reviews and word of mouth and keep expanding week by week. And then hopefully keep it in theaters as long as possible. We'll see if that old-fashioned model, which I understand, I mean, Fox Searchlight did that with my two biggest uh, commercial successes anyway, Sideways and The Descendants. That was their plan then, and let's hope it pays off now. And, you know, it's funny, Focus had bought this film, they had acquired it a year ago, September, September of 22, at the yeah. Toronto Film Festival. And some of my collaborators were like, we have to tell them to rush it out and get it in theaters now, and this would be a good environment. And to their credit, they said, no, we should wait a year. So that, not only so mm. that we have the time to develop thoughtful marketing uh, materials and a thoughtful publicity plan, but people will be more used to going back to the theaters in a year. And they mm. were just 100% right. So we got more people going back to theaters now, perhaps uh, the pump primed by Oppenheimer and Barbie and Taylor Swift and Flower Moon now on the date we're talking that people are, and you, know, you still have to go somewhere on a Friday and Saturday night. What do you do? We're supposed to do stay home all the time. Watch and TikTok. A, and the thing too, the yeah, the thing too that I really insist on for a movie like this being in theaters is a, an audience. It's not so much seeing the movie big, but it's the presence of your fellow audience members. Sure. And having that community experience, especially with a comedy. And mm -hmm. I, I think a movie is really not complete without an audience. That's what finishes a movie is not the color timing or the final mix, but rather the presence of an audience. If it's going to be a big theatrical success or a small one, you know, whatever it is, mid-range, we'll find out. But I'm just so glad that many people at least will be able to see it with an audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know you like to say at times that you find some of your movies end up too long. I believe what you said with the exception of I don't election. Say it often, but you say it once and then it gets picked up. 
So it does. So it does. (laughs) I did not find this movie too long at all. Um, So why, why do you feel that way about this one, for example? This is the first time it's ever happened to me. I started showing it in festivals, and I looked at it and said, uh, running time, 133 minutes. And I called the studio. I think you got it wrong. I think it's maybe 123 with credits. Did you? No, we timed it. And I usually track that pretty well. And for some sure. reason, I guess in a nice way, I just blew it off. Just The movie just kind of felt right. So 133 minutes sounds kind of long to me. And um, a couple of the aforementioned uh, responsible reviews I've read have said, yeah, you know, it could have been 10 or 15 minutes shorter, but it's still good and it pays off and all that. But uh, film is a constant search for economy. You know, you want your screenplay as tight as possible. You want the acting as fast as possible, given the rhythm of the film. You want to edit it as short as it should be, but no shorter. But still... Even though the movie feels right and you have that concern for economy, you know, it just gets a little gangly here and there. Hopefully not for all. uh, uh, Look, there's a a very classic film by a very famed, uh, now deceased Russian uh, director. And people will sit through this five-hour movie riveted, and I'm done by about 20 minutes in, man. So it's (laughs) it's all subjective. People could see... But I, the two movies of mine that I've made that I don't feel somehow come off as a little, the never sag, I think, are Election. Election's mm-hmm. got a pretty good metronome to it. And a six-minute short I made for an anthology film called Paris, I Love You. Sure, that sure. One, it's only six minutes long. Tough tough to drag on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still, you can see a one-minute TV commercial and get bored stiff. You never know. That does it for today's episode. We'll all be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com on various social media platforms at VF Awards Insider. And you can also find me around the internet at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.